Hey, New Life family, welcome to the weekly podcast. We want to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. We hope this message encourages you and helps you in some way today move forward in your relationship with Christ and others. We pray God blesses you wherever you are today. Now enjoy the message. Very familiar scripture. And and I'm speaking on the thought of it's a season for buying oil. This is the season for buying oil. And so as soon as you go to Matthew 25, you might begin to guess what set of scriptures it is that we are about to be reading from. It's a season for buying oil. Understand God has seasons for things. There's a season for laughing. There's a season for crying. We have a whole chapter in one of the Old Testament uh, poetry books that is distinctly designed to let us know that God is a God of seasons. And when we must understand the seasons that we are in, and not just we, but what God is in. So it's not, it's not, it's, I want to be careful how I say this. It's not always only about what season we are in. Predominantly, it's about what season God is in. And we begin to align ourselves up to the season that God is in. And in those seasons is when things become unlocked to us that maybe the season before, whether that's the day before, a week before, a year before, maybe it was in our heart's desire to do those things, to be those things, to operate in those things or whatever, but it just always seemed like it was close to us. It's because it probably wasn't the right season, wasn't the right timing, but God has seasons and he has timings. And as believers, it, it is basically commanded of us by Jesus himself to have a sight in the spirit to know when those seasons are. And so one of those seasons that we're going to read about today is there is a season for buying oil. And if there's a season for buying oil, then that that just automatically tells us that there will be a season after that when you will need oil. Tell your neighbor, you're going to need some oil. And so when we fail to buy oil in the proper season, then what it does is it puts a, it puts us in a deficit for the next season. And in the next season, when you're operating out of a deficit, that's when all kinds of crazy things start to happen. And I fear that at least the American church, we have been so pacified by our own feelings and we have been so pacified by even and I'm going to say this, and this might ruffle some feathers, but we've been so pacified by our own destinies. Now, listen, I I believe each individual has a purpose, and we each have a destiny, and we each have a ministry, but those things are never to take precedent over the whole of the body. And so we are a body first, both as a local body and as a global body. We are a body first. Before my thumb is a thumb, it's part of the body. Now, my thumb has an assignment. There is things that only my thumb can do that, unless it's another thumb, but there are things that my thumbs can do that not any other part of my body can do. But those thumbs are only important in the operation of the whole body. What good are my thumbs to be proficient in all that they do if there is a paralysis in the rest of my body? 
Do you understand? Then as an individual, I'm operating out of a certain level of deficit. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I'm just using the natural body to compare it to the spiritual body uh, of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, there are purposes, there are plans, there are designs, there's assignments, there are ministries that we all are to be obedient and walk in, but it's never, uh, it's, it's never supposed to be at the forefront of, of the whole. I am a part of the body, and I have to be concerned about the ministry of God through the body before just the projection of myself. And so there is a season for buying oil. There's a season as individuals for buying oil. And I believe there's a season in the corporate body for buying oil. And the reason why we have to buy oil and the reason why we have to have oil is because we don't know when the season is going to change. None of us knew that what, what happened in 2020, none of us knew what was going to happen in, in, in Christmas of 2019. In fact, a, a lot of people were projecting 2020 to be this great year of vision because they were just playing on the, uh, on the word play and the number play of the year of 2020. And so they were prophesying and projecting all of this greatness, and little did, did they know and did we know that in just a few short weeks of time, we was going to walk in something that we had never walked in, right? And so... When there is a season and an opening to get oil, gain oil, purchase oil, it tells us that there is a coming season where we're going to need oil, and that time is not for the buying. That time is for, for the distribution and the using of that oil. And so we have to understand we don't know the seasons. We, we, can, we can be aware. We can be alert. We can be asking God to, to guide us in those seasons of our life and, and as the corporate body and even as the corporate, uh, just the world. But we don't know the seasons. We don't know when days are going to change. We don't know when seasons are going to change in the spirit. We don't know when, uh, what the fall of 2024 is going to be like. We don't know what the fall of 2023 is going to be like. I can tell you from week to week how one week in my life is like good. I can't believe it. It's amazing. I'm walking on cloud nine and literally seven days later, it feels like I just went through a tornado. And so we don't know those things. That's why we must rely on the Holy Spirit for leading and guiding. Sometimes he will guide us around those things, but sometimes he will guide us through those things. And so I want to read this scripture. Look what it says in Matthew 25, starting with verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened, to ten virgin, virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Say wise and foolish. All right. So they, there was a dividing among them. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps also. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all began to slumber and they all fell asleep. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all of those virgins arose. They were awakened. They trimmed their lamps. They prepared themselves. 
And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, this is what we call a parable. And if, if you're reading from your actual scriptures or, or sometimes even certain versions uh, in the Bible app, will highlight things in red to let us know and to indicate to us that those are the actual words of Jesus. And so we see in our scripture that this is a parable that's being taught to both his disciples, but even others who are there, but predominantly to uh, not only the 12 disciples, but the 70 disciples that were real close because they had been asking questions. And so now he is very close. He's literally within probably a little more than a week or so, maybe a couple weeks before he is going to be crucified. And so the intensity of his teachings are becoming stronger. And he, but yet he's still using parables to equate what is going to happen in the natural uh, and what is going on in the spirit. We see in chapter 25 here that it is directly connected to chapter 24. Chapter 24 and chapter 25 go hand in hand. We only have the division of them in chapters and verses so that we can find things, so that we can label things, so that it's easily read, uh, not only just readable to us, but readily found in us. So, so people went in and began to divide so that we could find certain things. But 24 and 25 really should not, it should be one long chapter because they are connected and there's a theme if you, and I'm not certainly going to read through chapter 24 and, and the rest of 25, but I want to highlight to you just a couple of things that there is a theme um, that begins to play out and you can see these themes or these dominant subject uh, being highlighted through the words of Jesus. Um, for those that are taking notes and, and following along, I'll just give you briefly that like in chapter 24, verse 15, right around there, uh, Jesus has given some very, up until that point, Jesus has given some very descriptive points he has he is highlighting very specific characteristics that they can watch for to see when the end time is going to be. Now, we're not going to go into the depth of end time, but he is giving like bullet points when you see this, when you see that. And he is, he is defining what they are going to see. And he's being very district, descriptive. And then after that, he starts to give these warnings or these alerts, if you will, um, throughout the next chunk of scriptures, uh, such as this. He, he, he takes a set of scriptures and the warning is to pay attention. And then if you read down another set of 
chunk of scriptures. He, he is emphasizing to be watchful. And then you can go down another set of scriptures, and he is emphasizing to learn the changing of the seasons. And even, even in the, at the end of uh, chapter 24, he begins to give you, the reader and the disciples, a backdrop of Noah's day. And so for them to understand what he's talking about, rather than speaking in a parable here, he's given them some kind of context of history of what they would have read about in the Torah. And he's saying, remember when you read about the account of Noah and all the different things that you read about and have learned about through your rabbis and the word of God and the Torah, it's going to be a to those days. It's going to be likened into those days. And so he's using Noah's days saying that there is going to be a certain cultural normality of unrighteousness. And so he is telling a group of people that you are not in those days yet, but there will come a time just like in Noah's day that there will become a certain normality of culture of unrighteousness. How many could lift their hand and say, I believe we've tiptoed through some of those days where our culture has reached a place where it is actually normal to see, observe, and hear unrighteousness, and even the church doesn't blink an eye at it anymore. I'm not saying that we agree with it, and I'm not saying we don't pray against it, but it has become so normal to us that it doesn't shock us anymore. It doesn't, when we see things on television, it's, it's just, oh, well, that's just what they do now. If you're going to watch TV, you're going to see some of it. Are y'all following me? And so Jesus, in his very descriptive teaching here, is telling his disciples, your culture that you're in is one way, but the culture is going to shift and mold and change until one day the culture of the world is going to look like the culture of Noah. And that culture is where there's a normality of unrighteousness. But then he says, until the day Noah went into the ark. In other words, everything seemed normal, even though it was unrighteous. Everything seemed like, it says, and people were marrying and giving in marriage and being drunken with wine. And he goes on to some descriptive things. And he says, culture didn't bat an eye at it. They wasn't repentive of it. They, in fact, they were being bold about it. They were being brazen about it. They were raising their hands in, in figurative speech. They were raising their hand to God saying, we can do what we will. We are our own gods and we will govern our own selves. We will govern our own families. We don't need you, God, Jehovah, to tell us how to run our lives, how to run our culture, how to run our schools, how to run uh, our cities. And, and how many will say, our, not just America, but our globe is starting to tiptoe through some of these things. But Jesus also highlights that all of that was happening until, everybody say until, until, until Noah went into the ark. And even in my own set of scriptures right here, I have marked that because that means something changed. Yes. Something that seemed normal all of a sudden was no longer normal when the ark shut. Because even as you read what Jesus is saying historically, what the culture did back then, it was as if when the door shut, 
people. Now, it didn't happen in waves yet, but people started realizing, uh-oh, something is different. I believe they felt a shift long before they ever felt a raindrop. I believe some of them started thinking, uh-oh, something's different because animals just don't walk in two by two. Like, I may not agree with what Noah is doing, but I have to admit something is happening because now all of a sudden Noah is just standing up there. I don't even know how he did it. I'm just, you know, letting my own creative imagination. All of a sudden Noah is at the front of the boat. Maybe he just raises his hand. Maybe he just says, okay, God, let it happen. And then all of a sudden all these animals, two by two, you can't stop them. You can't divert them. You can't kill them. All of a sudden now, everything is happening. And so I believe they felt change before they ever felt a rain drop. But it wasn't until the rain came that they started crying out. And Jesus is using this backdrop of history to talk about a day and an age that is to come. And he's teaching his disciples. Then we also see a theme if you go into a at the very end of 24 and you start going into 25, you see a distinct theme of, of a distinct separation begin to happen. In other words, uh, you, if you go into chapter 25, you'll see Jesus is talking about the parables and, he'll, and he is making a distinction between the faithful servant and the evil servant. You will see he's making a distinction between the good and the faithful servants and the wicked and the lazy servants. Some of y'all need to hear this, that Jesus himself was equating laziness with wicked evilness. I'm going to say that again. Jesus himself, this ain't Pastor Amika, I'm just reading you what is in your Bible that Jesus taught his main core of disciples, both the 12 and the 70. He is equating through parabolic language that lazy servants look like evil servants in my eyes. We could close up, take the offering, and take an altar call right there. Jesus is saying through parabolic language that laziness in the Father's eyes looks like evilness and wickedness. And he's created a story around it. In verse 32, Jesus himself, it says, it says and Jesus himself will separate the sheep and the goats. Jesus himself will begin to do that, that they will come, and he's likening people unto sheep and goats. He's using uh, metaphoric language here. And so he's, he's calling uh, the righteous sheep, and he's calling the unrighteous goats. Uh, he says that Jesus himself will begin to draw a line in the sand, so to speak, and he's going to begin to distinguish between the sheep and the goats. And the sheep he's going to put at his right-hand side, which means a place of honor, but the goats or the unrighteous, he's going to move them over to the left-hand side, which is a place of rejection. And all of that he is calling unfaithful, wicked, and lazy. And right in the middle of all of this, in these two chapters, you have this parable and teaching of Jesus that we call 
the parable of the ten virgins. And Jesus is speaking here in parables because he is taking spiritual realities that he knows about and is aware of because he knows what is in the Father's heart, because he says, I only, I only say what the Father is saying. I only do what the Father is doing. I only show you what the Father is showing me in my humanness, because he had to go through the things that we go through. And so he's speaking about spiritual realities, but he's using parables, or you could say stories, uh, metaphors. He's using things like that in order to relay the realities of the spiritual realities and put them in physical pictures because we are physical people and because we are physical people, um, we have a limitation and we can really only understand physical things. And so Jesus is taking spiritual things. Serious talking to me. She just, she, he just said he didn't understand. We're going to get him saved. And so he is using the the spiritual realm and he's bringing it down to such a common level so that we as physical beings would be able to comprehend and wrap our mind around and begin to at least somewhat carry the concept of what the spirit is. And so this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Now, uh, I don't want to go down the eschatological road of this because there is a lot of end time meaning in these two chapters. I don't want to go down that direction because I don't feel like that's what the assignment is for the day. But I do, I want you to understand that this set of of particular scriptures um, does have meaning for end times, and we can use those scriptures to uh, become aware and and when we open up scriptures all scripture, but specifically these two scriptures, we can open up. You understand because we are physical beings and because we are carnal beings, we can open up the Bible, but that doesn't mean the Bible is open to us. And so some of us are reading devotionally, but we're reading carnally. And so we can look on our Bible app and we can say, oh, yep, got my check mark for the day. Or I got so many days in a row. Yep, I got it. And those are good uh, disciplines to begin to put into place. And those are duties as a spiritual believer that we need to put into place. But it's only the discipline and the duty as you keep doing that that brings the delight. Some of us are not in the realm of the delight of the word yet. We're still in the discipline of it. But just because you open up the word and read it does not mean the word has been opened unto you. Because when you read with a carnal mind, you cannot understand the things of the spirit. And so when you sit down, even devotionally, understand this, you must uh, let your spirit man come alive. And by that, what you do is you say, Holy Spirit, don't let me read this carnally. You open the scriptures to me. I can open the word and read it, but when I open the word with my carnal hands and my my carnal mind begins to read it, Holy Ghost, only you can open it to my spirit. And so then it becomes much more. That's when the truth starts setting you free. Just reading about truth that's just bouncing off of your mind does not set you free. It's when you ask the Holy Spirit to open up that truth and begin to apply it to your everyday living. 
And so because we are carnal beings and carnal minded, Jesus has to take spiritual realities and he talks about them through a metaphor form. And, and certainly these two chapters uh, go a long way toward end time prophecy and end time thinking. But like I said, we're not going to get into the weeds of that. However, I will say, before we dive into this, I will say, we do need to live our lives. Speaking of the second coming of Christ, we do need to live our lives like he's coming back right now. But we also need to live our lives as if he won't come for a thousand years. Because what has happened in the past is people lived their life only as if he could come right now, and they used it as an excuse not to build the kingdom of God. But people who don't live their life as if he could come today focus so much on the future that they miss the today. And Jesus is saying, you got to know the changing of the seasons because you're not going to know when the bridegroom is coming. You're not going to know when metaphorically, he's calling people into the ark and that door's going to shut. And all of a sudden, what used to be normal and what used to be okay, now there's a shift in the spiritual atmosphere. And even though unbelievers don't understand it, they're going to know something has taken place. And so I believe we need to live in the tension of he could come before the day is over with, or I could die tragically before the day is over with? Am I prepared to meet him either way? But yet also be such good stewards of our time, our money, our resources, our giftings, our talents, that I am willing to give all to build the kingdom of God, to build the body of Christ in case he don't come for another thousand years. So I don't just sit around in limbo just saying, well, you know, it could be the day, so I shouldn't have to prepare for nothing. I don't believe that that is the mindset either. There's a tension of I'm living for today that he could come now or I could tragically pass away before this day. But I'm also going to put everything I am into building the kingdom of God because another generation needs him in case he don't come. And so when Jesus begins to say what he's saying in the middle of all this that I just described, he begins to teach, and he says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now understand, that very sentence that we call verse 1, first century Christian Jewish people and first century disciples, uh, that first sentence makes total sense to them. They would have completely understood what Jesus was trying to convey to them because he was speaking bridal language to them. They understood Jewish covenant. They understood Jewish, what we would call weddings. They understood all of that. That was part of their everyday culture. And so when Jesus says, you, know, you want to know about the kingdom of God? I'll tell you what the kingdom of God is like. Hmm, how can I express it to you? Oh, I know. It's just like when 10 virgins take their lamps and go out to meet their bridegroom. And they would all, oh, okay, I know exactly what it's like for 10 virgins to go out and meet. The, I know exactly what that's like. So that's, he's equating the kingdom of God to this. In the Hebrew word, everybody say Hebrew. Hebrew. 
In the Hebrew word, there's this word, and, it, and it's minyan. Everybody say minyan. There, see, you're a Hebrew scholar. I, I classify all of you as Hebrew scholars right there. There's a word named minyan, and it simply means to count or to number. And it's, it's a very predominant word. People use this, this particular word, minyan, a lot. And Jesus is giving them a scenario of ten virgins. And, and this word is being uh, alluded to of minyan. Ten, understand this, when he used the, word, the number ten, all these Jewish men, all these disciples, all these followers of Christ, not only would they have equated to how their natural Jewish wedding ceremony would be, but they also would understand by him using the number 10 that that is the minimum number of Jewish males that have to gather that would constitute a congregation. So in other words, if you only have eight males, then you, do, you don't have the right to have your own synagogue. It takes at least 10 males. And when they say 10 males, they are including women and children. So in our language, we would say it takes 10 families to create your own synagogue or to create your own congregation. So when they hear Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is likened unto 10 virgins who trim their lamps and go out to meet the bridegroom, the the first thing, the first two things that these first Christian uh, Jewish people would have understood was God's kingdom is just like our, how we go out to, or how virgins go out to meet their bridegroom, but also that there's ten, and meaning I'm talking to congregational settings. They would have understood that automatically. So that's why they would have equaled it to a small congregation. So therefore, we can take these very words of Jesus, and it is very appropriate to take it as a word from Jesus, as a warning to congregations. Oftentimes, we put the emphasis on individuality, and there is a place for that. But in the setting in which we are bringing about, Jesus is taking heed, and he is saying, I'm giving you a warning as, as, as congregations, as small communities who are going to run and serve God. So there's 10 of them, and it means this. It means it's enough for a complete uh, congregation. But then he goes on further, and he's saying, a part of this congregation, Understand, he would have been talking to the 12. He would have been talking to the 70 and any others who might have been, uh, in, you know, mixed into this thing. So they are in full attention. They completely understand what he's saying up until this point. And he's saying, it's, the kingdom of heaven is like virgins who are trimming their lamps and they are anticipating their bridegroom to come. But there's 10 of them, which means it's enough for a complete congregation. But I'm giving you a warning that within those 10, there's five that are wise and there's five that he's calling foolish. He's splitting it right down the middle. He's saying five of them are doing the righteous thing. Five of them think they're doing the righteous thing. Five of them have prepared themselves well. Five of them think they have prepared themselves well. 
Are y'all following me? And Jesus, this is the beginning of Jesus himself. And he is starting, because you can read the rest of the parables and the rest of the accounts, Jesus himself is starting to, to bring a distinction in people. I believe we are on the precipice of where the Holy Ghost, who is the person of the Trinity, but more importantly, he is part of the Spirit of Christ, that he is starting to bring distinction to everybody who says they are Christian. Because if you ask America right now, America says we are 85% Christian. Hold on, I'm going to give you another stat. America as a whole, with their own mouths, confess to the tune of 85% Christian. And yet, 4% attend weekly gatherings to be a part of community. 85% are saying, we are Christ followers. And out of that 85%, Only 4% put it a priority to run after God through the gathering together of people. Now, I'm not saying you have to come to church to go to heaven. But I'm saying if you don't want to come to church, it should be a red flag. Y'all got real quiet right here. And Jesus is the one that's making the distinction. It's not the disciples, it's not Satan, it's not some wicked person. Jesus is saying, I'm talking to the congregation. That's why he used the number 10. I'm talking to a complete congregation, and I'm bringing distinction that some are wise. And he's going to tell us why they are wise. But he's also saying some, and he uses the word foolish, which just means They think they are wise, but they are really unprepared. And that's the reason they are unwise. Because they live with the deception that they are prepared. Y'all are real quiet right here. That's why Jesus is referencing the section to be foolish. is because they live under this delusion that they are prepared for the season to come. And Jesus is saying they are not prepared. And I'm going to make it more close because he's talking congregationally. So he would have been talking to his disciples. He said, you think you are prepared for the season to come. Because remember, things in scripture, you can apply it right then the day Jesus spoke it. But he's also prophesying it. That's why we can take it today. So in other words, if we put it into context of that day, he would have been telling Peter, Peter, you think you're prepared for the season to come. But I'm telling you, you are not prepared. This would have been really close to the uh, crucifixion. Therefore, it was going to be really close where G- or Peter himself was going to walk through a season of darkness where he actually would deny him. You have another disciple that was going to walk through a season that he was going to be so wounded he was going to doubt Jesus. All of them were going to run for their life except one. One of them was actually going to sell Jesus out for money. In other words, a paycheck became more important to him. And Jesus is talking directly to these people. And he's saying, 
the, the reason why you are foolish is because you think you're prepared, but I'm telling you, you are not prepared. He wasn't calling some of them wise because they were spiritual. He wasn't calling them wise because they uh, were rightly dividing the word of truth. He wasn't calling them wise because uh, they knew how to preach good, teach good, sing good, play a tambourine good, or any other thing that we call spiritual ministry. He wasn't calling them wise because of that. He was calling them wise is because he said they understand they're not going to make the next season unless they have something greater than themselves to propel them through it. So, he says five of them are wise and five are foolish. We here in the USA, speaking of how we operate in covenant and how we operate in what we would call wedding settings, we have one-day events. Now, they're stressful. They're a lot of money. <laughs> they're way too much money. But they're one-day events. We set aside however many hours, and we come together and we celebrate, but it's, it's all wrapped up in one day for the main part. That's not how they did Jewish weddings. They would, they would come and they would betroth themselves to one another. We would call that engagement. But their engagement looks a lot different than ours. Our, in America, we use that, that space and time of engagement for a couple of reasons. We use it to prepare and save up money for the actual wedding. But we also use that space and time to get to know one another and make sure uh, assignments are lined up and make sure values are lined up. And all that, that is all proper for American culture. But that's not how they did it. They came together and they initiated what we would call the engagement or the betrothal. But then the bridegroom would go away. And the bride had to stand by faith that the covenant was real. Because there was going to be a long season of time where she didn't hear the voice of her bridegroom and she didn't feel his presence and she didn't know exactly what he was doing. All she had was the promise of a covenant that this is so real that I'm going to leave you and you don't have to worry about my integrity. You don't have to worry about my faithfulness. You don't have to worry about me cheating because I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that when everything is prepared, I'm going to come back to you and we're going to complete this. Does this sound familiar to you? Jesus himself in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 4, he's using this exact bridal language of covenant. Jesus is saying that. Look, look what it says. Let me just read some of it just quickly to you. Y'all ain't got nowhere to go. Let's get our Bible reading in for the day. Look what it says in John chapter 4. I'm just going to read just, just so that... You hear what I'm saying. He's talking about, he's teaching again. Here he's teaching uh, his disciples. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know not the way or 
and where I go, you know, and the way you know. And so he begins to teach them. He, that is actually bridal language that he's using. So when they heard that, they, they would be like, is he talking about somebody getting married? Did I lose tra- track of something? Because all of a sudden he's teaching and he kind of switches for a moment. He says, "Um, I'm making covenant with you, but you can't go with me where I'm going because I'm going back to my father. And at my father's house is many rooms and I'm going to prepare those rooms. But don't get weary and don't lose heart because my faithfulness and my covenant to you is sure. My, My promises, in other words, are yes and amen. And I'm going to come back to you. You just have to believe what I'm saying. You have to put faith in what I'm saying. That my promises are sure. My favor towards you is sure. My covenant towards you is sure. My favor is sure. I'm going to leave you with a token of my covenant. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to leave you with a token that when I'm away, he's going to be just like me. Only he's going to be better because he's going to dwell inside of you. This all would have made sense to them. However, it didn't make sense to them because they couldn't put the two together because they were looking for political takeover. Oh, my goodness. And we in America are waiting for a political takeover. And Jesus said, it's not coming politically it's going to come supernaturally. It's going to come spiritually. And you already have what it takes in the authority. We talked about authority a while about, or a few weeks back, that the authority of, of the kingdom of God dwells in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. So they understood what he was saying naturally. They just didn't always apply it correctly. And at a certain time, he's telling them, through the parable now. I'm back in the parable. He's saying there's 10 of them. There's enough for a complete congregation. However, I'm splitting that congregation in two because some of them are wise and some of them are unwise because they think they're prepared. And at a certain time in the natural uh, Jewish wedding, and I just recently, I didn't know this up until just like a couple of weeks ago. Understand this, that I always thought that when a Jewish bride was preparing that she was preparing alone but that's not so she always prepared with any other brides who were in uh, her town or her village or in Jerusalem they always prepared together and at some point they knew because there would be everybody say season At some point, there would be a season when it could be, and I'll use this word loosely, that it could be predicted that the bridegrooms were going to start coming back. And so what they would do is they would gather together and they would begin to prepare last minute collectively. And so they would have this journey of coming together in one place together. And with them, they would bring a lampstand and a lamp. And it said five of them, or all of them brought oil, but five of them brought extra oil. Everybody say extra oil. And in the natural, a Jewish wedding, what would happen is there would be a season of predicting that 
oh man, a bride, the bridegrooms are going to start returning for their covenantal brides. And so they would come together and they would begin to prepare in one place together. And so when the call comes out, they would have a watchman out there. And as soon as they would see in the distance a bridegroom on his horse or on his camel or on his donkey coming, because he always came with an entourage. He didn't come alone. He always had several people. And so when the watchman would say, he would say, oh, there's a bridegroom. And so he would come back in and he would say, wake up, ladies, wake up bridesmaids because the bridegroom is coming. They didn't know which groom was coming for which bride in the natural. And so they would all wake up and spruce themselves and prepare. And they were all supposed to go out to meet him to see if it was their groom. That's why they all had lamps because if it wasn't their groom, then they would help the other one who was the bride, they would be the light unto the pathway. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? That's why it was imperative that they all had lamps. Because they were helping their friend or their co-community person to get to her bridegroom. Jesus is in the, nat- in the spirit the only bridegroom. But he is using the analogy of what they understood. And he's talking congregationally. He said, you have enough for a complete congregation, but some of you are wise and some of you are foolish. But there's going to come a changing of the season when somebody's going to begin to cry out. And so the idea was this, that Jesus was making to them. Do you have enough oil to make it through the dark night? He's conveying the principle that I'm going to go away, but there's going to come a season that you think you're prepared for, but I'm telling you, you're not prepared for it. And do you have enough oil to walk through the darkness of the night? The darkness of the night, he wasn't referring to the actual night time where you sleep. He was referring to his light being away from them. And they was going to have to walk without him physically being there. And so we look at our culture. We look at our day. We look at our faith. We look at our life and the things that we have to go to, go through. And we say, yes, right now we are in a very dark time. The idea is as one of these virgins are traveling through darkness, how much oil do you have? Let that question weigh on your mind for a moment as an individual. How much oil do you have? But then even broaden the boundaries and say it collectively as one congregation. How much oil does new life have? That needs to weigh on your conscience a little bit. That needs to weigh on your spirit a little bit. Because oftentimes we think, oh, because I come to church and I, and I check my devotional thing that I have enough oil. And I believe Jesus is trying to tell us in our culture, we think we're prepared, but we are not prepared. How are we not prepared? Because we get so easily distracted. One little thing distracts us. One little thing takes our eyes off of who he is. One little experience shakes our faith. One little hurt or wound uh, uh, derails us. 
We think we're, I'm talking to us at New Life. I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost, I wasn't supposed to even be preaching, but the Holy Ghost was told me to preach this since it happened this way. He is saying, you think you're prepared, but I'm telling you, you're not prepared. He was conveying the the principle, do you have enough oil to make it through darkness? Do you have enough oil to make it through the next season? Is your light going to go out? What we often forget about in all the things of life is this, that we are supposed to be a lampstand ministry. Jesus refers to that over and over again. He says, having salvation is likened unto a lamp. You don't put that lamp uh, under a bushel, but you put it on a lampstand for all to see. You are supposed to be like a city set on a hill. In the book of Revelation, he calls the seven churches the lampstands of the, of the world of that time. We are called to be lampstands, and therefore we should have a lampstand ministry. Jesus says there's ten virgins. Five are wise. Five are foolish. Notice they are all virgins. Notice they all have lamp stands and they all have oil. The only difference between the two is how much oil they had. And only Jesus could tell how much oil everyone has. It is not my responsibility to gauge how much oil you have. It is not your responsibility to gauge this side how much oil they have. It is not our responsibility as this local body to look at another local body and gauge how much oil they have. We don't know. Only God the Father knows how much oil every congregation has and how much oil every individual has. And that is the question Jesus is posing them. And the only difference between them, they were all there together. Say together. They were all together. They were a complete congregation. They all had lamps. They all had lamp stands. And they all had oil. However, some had more oil. Say more oil. And we, I believe, are in a season that we are now to buy oil. Can I put it to us in, in our language? They all had the same music. They were all gathered together in the same place. They were all listening to the same sermons. They were all part of the same congregation. They all watched the same shorts on TikTok. They all knew how to put scriptures on Facebook. They all had a certain knowledge of what they were perceiving. But some had more oil. What is oil? Oil is the Holy Ghost. It's the Holy Spirit. He is often equated to oil in scripture. 
Understand this, when you confess your sins and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the indwelling Spirit of God. Let me teach to you right here so you don't get confused in your theology. When you confess your sins and Jesus Christ becomes Lord of your life, you receive the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. Now, you may not receive the gift of tongues at that precise moment, or you may, but you do receive the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And so then you say, well, wait, Pastor Mika, if I confess my sin and Jesus is Lord of my life and I receive the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, wait, there's something else that I need more? I have to have more? I'm here to tell you, you have to have more. You don't need more to go to heaven. Repentance and belief in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross is what gets you into heaven. But you do need more to walk through the dark space. The oil was for the walking through the dark space. The dark space in this parable is equal to the mundane things of life. The dark space, that's why they all fell asleep. When it says they all fell asleep, Jesus wasn't condemning them. That was not a condemnation that Jesus was speaking to. He was saying, it's natural to fall asleep. You are going to go to sleep. You're going to face some things in life. You're going to go through some things. And the oil is not to get you into heaven. Repentance and belief in Jesus in, at this time, the blood of Jesus, that's what gets you into heaven. And you receive the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you, to walk through the darkness of the next season, it's going to take more oil. And Jesus himself, even in the passage that we're working on, he starts dividing them and he's showing them some are righteous and some are unrighteous. Some are wise, some are unwise. He says some are faithful and some are lazy. Jesus is bringing the division. He's not being divisive. He's just being distinctive. He's putting a mark on them. And he's putting the ones that he calls sheep on the right side, a place of honor. The ones that he calls goat or the unwise on the left side, a place of rejection. Why? Because they were deceived. Because they thought they were prepared. And they wouldn't take heed to prepare. Understand this, that there would have been a person similar to the watchman who was saying, behold, the bridegroom is coming in the natural wedding perception of the Jewish culture. Just as much as we hear about this watchman that was going to be the outcrier, there would have been a person because they knew where the brides dwelled. They were called messengers. And the messengers would come knocking on the, where the, Jesus is saying the ten virgins were staying or congregating. And a messenger would come knocking and saying, are you sure you prepared enough oil? Yep, we got enough oil. We got all we need. We're, we're set. We're good to go. A few days would go by, no bridegroom. Guess what? The messenger 
It's been a few days. It's been a few weeks. Are you sure you got oil? Are you taking proper precautions that you got oil? We got all the oil we need, sir. Because you know how women get. There's a reason why they call them bridezillas. We have been preparing our whole life for this. We don't need you to tell us how We've got oil. See, we got a lamp. We got the stand. And we have the oil. But Jesus is making it very clear that when the watchman on the wall said, Awake, awake, the bridegroom is coming. They all woke up. They all heard the sound. And all of a sudden, something had changed. That's why Jesus likened it unto the day of Noah. When the the closing of the door, something switched. The bridegroom, somebody, awake, awake, the bridegroom is coming. And they all awoke and they all trimmed their lamps. They had no distinction to this point. All the Christians looked alike. But it was when they trimmed their lamps that they noticed, oops, I guess I should have made buying oil a lot more priority in my life. In my waiting season. Are you all hearing me? In my waiting season, I should have bought more oil. In the season where it didn't feel like anything was being accomplished or achieving, I should have bought more oil. I was focused on my lamp. I was focused on the wick. I was focused on the stand. But I didn't realize I only thought I had enough oil. Oh, my goodness, in my waiting season, I should have bought more oil. And Jesus is saying that's why they are unwise. Because they had the chance. I gave them an opportunity, but they seen their opportunity as something yuck. I feel the weightiness. I don't know if y'all feel it. They used the opportunity to purchase oil, and they perceived it as an annoyance to them. I sent them messengers, be prepared, buy oil, but they seen it as a nuisance to them. Jesus is saying, that's why they are unwise. They're not unwise because of who their name is, where they go to church, or who they are, what they look like, or what their talents are. They're unwise because I gave them opportunity to buy oil, and they've seen it as a nuisance to prepare for the next season. Understand this, Jesus says there was five wise and five foolish. What you don't see is any neutral ground. You don't see a couple hanging out in the middle. You were either wise or you were foolish. What is Jesus saying? You're either prepared or you're unprepared. You either have enough oil to walk through the darkness or you don't have enough oil to walk through the darkness. There's no middle ground. You either belong to Jesus or you don't. And in America, we've tried to make our own team. And Jesus says there ain't but two teams. You're either wise or you're foolish. Belonging to Jesus means preparing yourself with enough oil. And if you don't prepare yourself, this is going to be a very blunt statement. 
But if you are not preparing yourself for more oil, then you don't belong to the bridegroom. (laughs) They were all sleeping, which equals everyday life. But suddenly, something happened that woke them all up. You would think 2020 would have woke us up. I imagine there's angels around the throne room of God saying, Jehovah, hallowed be your name. What is it going to take to wake them up? I thought for sure that was going to wake them up. And it might have for a moment, for a month, for a few weeks. But then we settled right back down. They all heard. Get this. They all responded. And they all woke up. They all heard. They all responded, and they all woke up when they heard the word, Behold. But they understood something. I heard the word, Behold, and I'm awake, but I am not prepared. Because, and I'm just, I'm just using my creative imagination to give us some language for our own day. I always said I was going to prepare. I always thought, I would get more serious about God. I always thought I would take some of my income and put it away for buying oil. I always thought that I would prepare myself better. I always thought I would use my time more wisely. It was my intention to buy more oil. But the days turned into weeks, the weeks turned into months, and I thought I had enough to get by. In verse 7 and verse 8, Jesus says this, then all those virgins got up and put their own lamps in. And I'm reading from the Amplified Version. Listen to how the Amplified Version says this. Then all those virgins got up and put their own lamps in order. The messenger did not put their lamps in order. The watchman on the wall did not put their lamps in order. Their congregation Put the lamps in order. Because Jesus, by saying the number 10, is calling them a congregation. Y'all are so quiet. The individuals put their lamps in order, trimmed the wicks, added oil, and lit them. But the foolish virgin said to the wise, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. Their lamps weren't out. But they understood by the level of flame, they understood by the level of oil that they wasn't going to make it through the night walk because they had to go out to meet their, which means, has anybody ever walked at night in the country with no city lights, no flashlights? It is darker than sin itself. It is dark. I was just in a place in the woods. That place is dark. Tim's like, I'm going to go out and walk and pray. Have fun with that. I'm staying in the camper because it is dark. Like, you can't even see. It was dark. We was in the woods, y'all. I don't even think mosquitoes lived out there because it was so dark. They couldn't even find their own way. It would have been in those kind of conditions that they had to go out to meet. So it means that they had a point A and a point B, and there was a traveling space that they had to walk through in darkness. And all they had was the burning of their own lamp. They said, give us 
some of your oil because our lamps are going out. Now that I'm listening, the scripture is very clear that the cry came at midnight, which is the darkest point between midnight and 3, p- 3 a.m. is the darkest point of the night. It wasn't till the darkest point of the night that the unprepared realized, uh-oh, I don't have enough oil. And look what happens. They go to the ones who prepared for oil. The foolish or the unprepared said, give me some of your oil. They had some oil. They just didn't have enough oil. And what made them foolish was they thought they could use someone else's oil. Two things deceived them. They thought they were prepared and they weren't. And the second deception was they thought they could use somebody else's oil and you cannot. Their choices throughout the waiting period hindered the amount of oil that they had. Some of us are this nonstop, and we don't even see that our choices. We do it even in the middle of church. Half, half the time, we look out in the congregation, and people are doing this, and we don't even realize it's an opportunity to buy oil, and we're missing that because we think we're good. We think, oh, I'm good. I can make it through this. I'm good. And if I can't, well, I got a mom and dad. If I can't, I got a pastor. If I can, I got a church family. That's part of what Jesus is saying the deception is. You think you're prepared and you're not, but then you think you can borrow somebody else's oil, and I'm telling you, you can't. That's why you're unwise. That's Jesus' words. They didn't have, you know what oil represents? Prayer. It's the Holy Spirit. It's prayer. They didn't have enough prayer life to sustain them through the dark times. Altars are full every Sunday all over America. They're full almost every Sunday all over America. Altars are full because somebody else is praying. Y'all are quiet. Altars are full all over Kansas City this morning. Because as we come to the altar, it is part of our just everyday culture that we have a prayer team we have a pastoral team and somebody comes and prays with us and for us y'all and they're full however altars at home are barren because nobody's there to pray for us and we don't have oil to pray we have oil to read our devotion we have oil to put a worship list set on We have oil to not watch certain things. We have oil to not say different things. But nobody is cultivating oil to pray. And that's where the more oil comes in. I hope y'all are absorbing what I'm saying. Because I feel the weight of the Holy Ghost on this. We always want to borrow somebody else's oil. I'm closing with a couple statements here. Your favorite preacher can't get it for you. I don't care who your favorite preacher is. He or she cannot get it for you. Your favorite Christian cannot get it for you. You can be connected to whomever you want to be connected to, big, great, or small. They can't get it for you. 
Your favorite family member cannot get it for you. You may be so in love with a certain family member that they are the rock solid of your life, but your favorite family member cannot get oil for you. In 2023, you have to get your own oil. Jesus himself is telling this parable, and he's telling it in a way that you have to buy your own oil. I said it, I'll say it again. We are called to be a lampstand ministry. And what often brings tears to my eyes in prayer, when I'm praying, I'm just being vulnerable, is because I understand that while I'm praying and I'm just being real before God, and it often will cause tears to gush down my face, is I am telling God, And understanding that I am not the best preacher, that I am not the smartest person in the room, that I don't have the highest education, I don't have the greatest leadership skills, probably not even the best of leader, but what I know is true, one thing that I factor into the equation is I have bought some oil. You could say all of those things that I just mentioned and they would be 100% true. But what you cannot say is I don't have oil. I have oil. And my question to you is do you have oil? Or is it just enough? Is it just the indwelling of the spirit? That's going to get you to heaven. But is it going to get you through the dark change that's coming? Is it going to get you through whatever your life is going to behold next month? or at the end of the year, or God forbid, next year. Whatever we have to walk through is, do you have enough oil? I'm not talking about getting to heaven. This message is not about going to heaven or going to hell per se. It's about we're all going to walk through some dark times. Jesus said it. And do you have enough oil? Or are are you deceiving yourself and thinking that you are prepared? Salvation is free. But do you have... But do you know how to buy oil? I think it's astonishing that in this set of scriptures that the wise told them, you can't have our oil, go buy oil. And then the next verse says, and they went and bought oil. See, we have preached so much grace in the American church that when we talk about you have to buy your own oil, that actually offends us because we think it's only it's going to take grace. I'm telling you, grace is the first step. Buying your oil is the next step. And buying oil can only happen through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about travailing in the Spirit. I was just telling Yvette, one of the things that happened this past weekend, give me just a few more minutes. One of the things that just happened this weekend that I have never experienced in my life is God so showed up on Friday night that reconciliation was literally happening right before my eyes. And I had no idea until afterwards, till, till I was filled in with the knowledge of it, but reconciliation and weeping and mourning was happening in the altars all over, specifically with two pastor's wives. And some things was happening, and it was just incredible. But the anointing came in that place. And I began, and at first I thought it was going to be a 
uh, a, a gift of the Spirit through tongues, but it was just so different that even while I was praying in tongues, I understood there was going to be no revelation from this. There was going to be no uh, what we would call interpretation of it. But the only thing I can equate it to and what I was telling you, Ben, is God so filled that place, I literally had to hold on to the, to the podium because my legs were shaking and I was praying in the Holy Spirit and it was so authoritative that it was what I would say, it had to be travailing in the spirit. That travailing in the spirit broke open something for the preparation of reconciliation. And my question to you is, do you have enough oil to travail in the spirit, to break something open? Later on, Jesus says, the earth is going to go through birth pangs. What is birth pangs? Birth pangs is an opening up of something so something new can come from pain. Or are we just like, I don't know. know. I'm good. I'm good. Just go on with our life. We just look like that. And we say, we're Christians, we're Jesus. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm not doing nothing. And Jesus is saying, that's why I'm calling you foolish. Because you have an opportunity to buy some oil. And you're not buying oil. And I'm telling you, in the dark of night, you're going to want to buy oil. But that's too late to buy oil. You cannot have my experiences. And I cannot have yours. And it's through experiences where we buy our oil. Several years ago now, I'm going to shut this so I can stop. Several years ago now, while I was praying, I heard the Holy Spirit speak plain as day. He said this, the politicians will be replaced with my prophets. I was like, God, what does that even mean? Because it's been a couple years ago now. But now as we have, have are been several years now removed from the Holy Spirit speaking that into me, it's so clear to me now what he's saying. He was saying the politicians, and he wasn't referring to politicians in the world. He's talking about his church, his congregation. The politicians are are coming down and being removed, and the prophets are being set in their place. Why? Because prophets have oil. Prophets spend so much time alone that they have to have oil, specifically in the Old Testament. My question is, you say, Pastor Mika, how long are you going to preach on this? How long, how long are you going to keep us in praise and worship? How long are you going to make us pray on Wednesday night until we walk out of the prayer closet and we don't look like us no more? How long are you going to pray, Pastor Amika, until I walk in as Amika and I walk out and I look like him? I'm not talking about being flaky. I'm not talking about setting a standard that's unrealistic. I'm talking about buying oil. I want to say one thing, but I don't want to stay on this point very long. Because I fear even saying it that some will use it as a crutch, honestly. But I want to let you know. It says, and the unprepared, in verse 9, the unwise 
asked for oil, and the wise said no, otherwise there will not be enough for us and for you. Here's the warning. Stop trying to share your oil. That doesn't mean you abandon people. That doesn't mean you wash your hands of people. But you cannot share your oil with people. Stop sharing your oil. David goes out to seek Samuel. And he's seeking Samuel because advice from Samuel because Saul is coming after him. Saul hated him with a vengeance, and Saul sent people to go and kill David. And so David is running to Samuel, which is a representation of the word. He's trying to hear the word of the Lord. And as he is with Samuel, and Saul sends his men to kill the very anointed one of God who's carrying oil, as Saul sends the men, as the men get closer to the proximity of the oil, Scripture is very clear. It says, and they started prophesying. And everybody was astonished because they knew when you started out, you were starting out to kill. And the closer you got to Samuel and David, you yourself started prophesying. And then it got to the point where Saul himself comes and he comes with the literal intention to inflict harm upon David. And the closer he gets to David and the closer he gets to Samuel, Saul himself with a grievance in his heart starts prophesying. That tells us one thing. The anointing is transferable. I'm going to just say this. And some of you have some souls in your life that are borrowing your oil. Don't give your oil away. And again, it does not mean you're unrighteous. It does not mean you, you better hear from God. But you can't, they can't have your oil. Know the difference between a David and a Saul. There's a difference between knowing the difference between a David and a Saul. I'm going to close with this right here. I'm done. You have to buy oil. Oil is what keeps you burning. Let me, let me read this quickly. In Ephesians 5, <clears throat> verse 15 through 18, it says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. This is Paul using some of Jesus' own language. Don't live like the foolish, but live like those who are wise. We, we, we could transfer that to don't live unprepared, but live prepared. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thought, thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Hold on. He's put something here that we take out of context. Don't be drunk with wine. Because that will ruin your life. Instead, everybody say instead. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when you hear the reading of that scripture or the quoting of that scripture, the focus is on the first part of that verse 18. And yes, it is a command because it says do not be. That's a command. But nobody ever follows up with the second half of that scripture, which is also a command. But instead, and it's a beautiful thing. Why? Because Jesus, through relationship, is saying, don't, don't partake of something that's going to hinder your life, but instead partake of something that is beautiful. 
See, religion will always tell you the don't and stay away from and cut this out and don't do this. But Jesus or the gospel will say, listen, all of that, you're going to find some level of enjoyment in the carnality. But it's all, all of it is going to lead to degradation. All of it is going to lead to sin. All of it is going to lead to unrestfulness. All of it is going to lead to unpeacefulness. Maybe not at the beginning, but it's going to take you down the road to where your life is going to end in shambles. But instead, he's saying... Don't get drunk with wine because you're going to wake up with a headache. You're going to wake up vomiting. You're going to wake up and your wife and your husband hate you. You're going to wake up and you're going to have your life destroyed. Instead of going down that where the goodness is only for a moment, but instead be filled with the spirit that's beautiful. See, we don't preach those kind of sermons. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul himself says, but I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. There's always going to be people that tell you the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. But Paul himself is saying, you have a lamp. You have a lampstand. I have a lamp. I have a lampstand. You have the Spirit. I have the Spirit. But I have more oil than you. That's what he's saying in that scripture. Revelations, my last one, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Because you say, this is Jesus talking directly to a church In the book of Revelation, he says, because you say, I am rich, I become wealthy, I have need of nothing. And you do not know, you do not know that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Everything that they thought they were prepared for, Jesus is saying, but through the Father's eyes, it's not so. You think, you think you have the right clothing? I see you as naked. You think you have vision? I see you as blind. You think you have enough wealth? I see you as poor. He's talking to the church. It goes on to say, and Jesus himself says, but I counsel you to buy from me. That's not given grace. That's buying from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and your white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see Jesus was offering them and instead. You think all of this, and I'm telling you, this is what the Father sees, but instead, when you buy gold from me, or you buy oil from me. You're really going to have salve to see what you need to see. You're really going to be clothed with what you think you're clothed with right now. Stand with me all over. Play some worship music. In fact, play that song that you ended with. Sometimes we're saving people from the bottom. God's trying to bring them up higher. And we have good intentions, but we're actually saving them from the bottom that God is allowing them to hit in order to bring them up higher. Are y'all hearing me? Can't give people your oil. Know the difference between a David and a Saul. There's a lot of applications that we can put in our life from this. This I probably could have preached another two hours on the principle of those scriptures. But I want to give you an opportunity for the Holy Spirit 
and you to be like, God, don't let me be deceived. I want to have enough oil because there is a changing of the seasons coming. We don't know when that is. Maybe it's going to be long. Maybe it's going to be another 10 years. Maybe it's going to be another 25 years. We don't know. That's the part we cannot control. But it could be six months. It could be a year. We don't know the changing of the seasons. We just have to have oil when the seasons change, which means we ha- there's an opportunity right now in what we're in. Don't let it become nuisance to you. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Don't get wrapped up so much in people, so much in whatever, that you're missing your opportunity. You think you have everything worked out. You think you have your life vision worked out. I'm telling you, the Lord has given us an opportunity to make sure we have oil. So here's what, as as the worship plays, I want to invite you to come. Because I think when we we present ourselves up front, I believe it causes us to get out of that place where we're just looking around. And we're just preparing an altar. And nobody's going to pray for you. You have to tend your own lamp. Come sit on the front. Come kneel at the altar. Come sit on the altar. Come lay before the Lord. Nobody, nobody's going to hear you. Nobody's going to pray for you. Pastor Tim and I, we're going to let you pray for yourself. It says, and when the, they heard, they had to trim their own lamp. You have to make sure you have oil for whatever your life holds in the next season. Go ahead and lift that up a little bit for us back there, guys. And we're just going to seek the Lord for just a few minutes before we dismiss.